Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome to another episode of The Vault, which is a, a special edition of the Speaker Lab podcast, where we are unlocking some timeless episodes, classics by revisiting some of your favorites from the show. Now, uh, if you've ever wondered how some speakers are charging $20,000 and more for a gig, others just can't seem to make ends meet, well, you have come to the right place. Mitch Joel uh, is a good friend and just an uh, amazing speaker, great human being. He is here to tell us how to become a highly sought after speaker that can charge more, all right? Uh, now, as an international speaker, author, CEO, he brings years of experience working with companies like Walmart, Google, and Starbucks. And if you're curious about what are the must-haves that will take you to the next level, this episode is for you. Mitch and I, we're gonna talk about speaker identity. We're gonna talk about helping you define your, your content center of excellence and how to know if you're killing it on stage. So all right here, take a step back into the archives. Let's dig into this. Here's my conversation from the vault with Mitch Joel. Enjoy. What's up, my friends? Graham Baldwin here. Today I'm hanging out with my buddy Mitch Joel, who is a uh, he's just he's a big wig in, in all in all forms of, of speaking and books and all of the above. So uh, Mitch, how are you today, brother? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Good to you speak bet, man. You. Hey, so first of all, uh, I want to dig into your story about how you got into speaking. But before we get there, why don't we do? Why don't we kind of lay out what, what does speaking look like today? Because uh, you speak, you write books. Uh, do you do consulting as well? Yeah, it's an interesting. I have one of those strange speaker stories. I really am president of Miram, which is a global digital marketing agency. This agency actually started off in 2000 as Twist Image. It was a local business that I had started with three other business partners that we grew over the years that we sold to WPP, which is like the largest advertising communications network in the world. It's like a $30 billion company. Oh. And I stayed on to be president of this new entity called Miram, which is an amalgamation of many other agencies that they had acquired geographically different than us. And now Miram's, you know, 2,000 plus people uh, in 20 plus countries. And so that's my, my main title. My job, my real job hasn't really changed since 2002-ish where I'm sort of the guy who goes out on the road. I speak. I create a lot of content. I write blog post articles. I write, I've written two books. I've got a third one that I'm, I'm currently sort of tinkering with. I do the public speaking thing, probably 40 to 60 gigs a year. I do a podcast every week, which I've been doing. And all that content and stuff I've literally been doing for well over a decade. Like I was blogging before most people were blogging and podcasting before most people were podcasting. And then public speaking just became this amazing way to avoid me having to sell one-to-one. I mean, I just mm -hmm. dreaded like getting in the car and driving on the highway and knocking on corporations' doors. Do you need a website? Do you need social media? Do you need a mobile app? 
and I just got into speaking and thought it was a really great way to talk about the industry that I serve and at the same time have people say, how do we work together? Yeah. All right. So in, in, in some ways you're basically, uh, you're representing your own company. You're representing, you're kind of the face of that, but you're also, uh, it sounds like in some ways almost the rainmaker for the company. Yeah. I mean, I don't like the like, rainmaker thought leader right. titles, but that would be the sort of bucket of what I do. The caveat to it, which is very unique, is that I have representation with two of the largest speaking bureaus and my content as I present it has no branding related to Miram and no examples of our work. So I do zero shilling of what we do at Miram from the stage. It really is much more about the intersection of how are consumers connecting to brands through technology today and what does it look like? Gotcha. So is that what you've been speaking, like, like, have you been speaking uh, on that your entire career or as, in terms of like being a representative for Miram or is that kind of evolved into what it is today? Yeah, again, it's so, sort of a strange thing. If you, if you saw me on stage, I'm not a representative of Miram. I just look like any other speaker who has yeah. a, a topic of interest. Um, but I've spent a lot of my energy focusing on what I call my, my content center of excellence. And it's just an exercise that I encourage every speaker or, or person who's creating content to do, which is you sort of draw a triangle and you go, what are the three areas that I focus on? Mm -hmm. So for me, it was brands, consumers, and technology. And then the middle, you create a bullseye. So what's the focus of it? And for me, it's always been marketing media. Now, if, when I say that, I know a lot of people who are listening are like, there's a lot of people who talk about brands and technology and consumers. It's sure. true. But when I started doing it in 2003, not many people were doing it. And I believe what happens over time, and this is an important lesson for all speakers, is you go from having a unique area of content mm -hmm. to a unique voice in your area. And that's been the real trajectory of what's changed from when I started, where I was one of the first people talking about brands, consumers, technology, what the internet was very new. What do we talk about? Social media was very new to the moment now where I believe over time and the work that I've put in, I have a unique voice in that area. So the, the sort of core area of what I speak about doesn't have to be unique, but it's my voice now that has become unique in that area. Gotcha. So it sounds like if I'm understanding correctly, that you are kind of positioning yourself as, as Mitch Joel, the, the, a personal brand who just also happens to do some work with Miram. No, I, <laughs> I, I would, I would, I would position it as Mitch Joel is president of Miram. Okay. And he's also a best-selling author, journalist, etc. Gotcha. I really do try and keep the two very, as closely connected as possible so that um, one, there is that connection to the work that I do uh, but I do it in an unbranded way when I'm on stage because, you know, if you're a major brand, call it P&G, and you've got already a ton of agencies, to have another agency come up there and pitch isn't exactly what they want. But right. to have somebody come up and explain to them what's shifted in terms of how consumers connect to, tech, to, to us because of technology and marketing, that, that's why I sort of took it away. I was finding I was not getting gigs because they were like, we don't want an agency person on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. That, that's the sort of gap between the two, but it's not really a gap. It's, it really, it's really actually an amazing way to validate and qualify the best potential people to work with. Yeah, makes sense. Well, and the reason I asked it is I know that, that some people want to be the, I, I want to just show up and speak and I want to do 60, 70 events a year and that's it. And I don't need to represent anything else. I'm just want to do this thing. But then there's plenty of people who like yourself, who they are a speaker, but they also have this other thing that they do. And speaking works really, really well in terms of being 
almost like paid lead generation where it sounds yeah. like for in your, in your situation, a lot of the business that you generate for Miriam comes directly from your speaking. And so they can, the two can work in hand in hand really, really well. But like you're saying, it is kind of that delicate dance of, you know, they, the clients don't want to spend a bunch of money to bring in a speaker who's just going to pitch something from stage. Their own stuff. Yeah. So I, I will tell you that in the acquisition process with WPP, they were very much fixated on this weird thing that we had monetized what they would call thought leadership. If you're an agency guy and some association or brand calls you, you go because it's a potential biz dev thing. And so you want to sort of dance into your wares. They were just fascinated with the fact that I had secured, you know, bureau talent that I had done all the, the types of events I've done, the book deals, my literary agent. They were just like, how, like are the sort of most well-known names in the industry don't do that. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's a unique thing where you're right. I try and explain to people that it somewhat offsets the, offsets the cost of biz dev. Right. While at the same time, you're, right it, it is a personal brand and, and the struggle is and always has been for over a decade how do you make sure that like what mitch joel is saying out in the world is somehow connected to miram and the answer is by by always having it be mitch joel dash president miram like yeah. that is the sort of brand i always try and push out so when someone says we're having a digital expert or a marketing person or an innovation person come in i'm always like it, president of miram and then say what you want <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. What were you doing? Um, uh, whenever you first got into speaking, what, like what you remember some of your first early gigs that you did? Yeah. I have one of those, like I used to be in the music industry before I was in, okay. in, in the marketing business and that was in the late eighties. And, um, you would always hear the stories of like somebody walked into a bar and discovered this person and next right. thing you know, and you, you just, there were unfathomable, unrealistic stories. Right. And yet my speaking story is literally that I had attended a, a very well-known day-long seminar thing in Canada called The Power Within. And this one was focused on sales. And at the time, I had no money. I bought a ticket. It was in Toronto. I live in Montreal. I drove six hours to get to an 8 a or 9 a.m. event. So I woke up like three in the morning, whatever it was crazy. It was like midnight, yeah, yeah. I don't remember. Uh, and the thing with this event was you had to buy the ticket through, through an actual person. So I connected with the person. And I happened to know one or two of the speakers because I was a big business book nerd. So I was sort of just nerding out as a fanboy. Sure. Go to this event, meet the guy, meet a couple of the speakers, hang in a little bit after, drive home exhausted, wind up having a coffee with this guy at one point when I'm traveling to Toronto for business. He introduces me to the owner of this company. We connect for a bit. And one day the guy's just like, you know, if you're ever in town and you need some office space, we're sort of growing here, but we have room. So I would sort of just park my bag there while I was doing my sales calls in Toronto and I was sitting in that office and one day he walked in and he was like, you know, I think I want to put you up on stage. And I was like, about what? <laughs> He's like, just the way you're building your sort of this personal brand thing of like, you know, like again, it was, you know, early days, like 2004, 2005 of blogging and early days of podcasting. And there was no Twitter at the time or anything like that. It's like, I think people should hear this story. And I said, okay, I'll do it. Not knowing or realizing what it was. And then within a week, my first gig was in Edmonton in front of 6,000 people with Dr. Phil as a headliner. That was and your first gig? That was my first gig. And so when he said that, I sort of like went, oh my Lord. And what I did was I actually went out and I took it really seriously. I didn't sort of like panic the last day. I planned out like months ahead of working with some corporate trainers. I worked with a friend of mine who had been a stand-up comedian just to sort of give me some pointers on stage. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was totally anxiety, panic attack, like just freaking out. Sure. And so I managed to pull it together and make it happen in a very terrifying, 
it was really anxiety ridden. Like it was not a fun, I don't want to say it's a fun experience. A lot of speakers yeah. are like, I just felt the blood up there and I loved it. I just was panicked the whole time. Yeah. And I got off stage thinking I just survived, you know, like a hand just crossed that finish line, just made it. Right. And um, a speaking bureau called Speaker Spotlight, which is one of the biggest speaking bureaus in Canada, one of the reps came up to me and basically said, you know, how long have you been speaking? And I was like, that was it. <laughs> that was my first one. <laughs> You've seen my entire career. <laughs> yeah. And she was like, are you kidding me? And I was like, no. She's like, I'd like to speak with you. And we connected. And I literally got signed to one of the largest speaking bureaus off of that one gig that one day. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. So it's like one of those crazy, like someone walked into a bar and it was Mick Jagger and he signed you to a record, record label. It was one of those like crazy things. Yeah. And it's one of those like, like, yes, that is true. But there's also, like you said, like th there's a lot going on behind the scenes that position you to be in that spot. So, you know, you driving six hours through the night to go to something, to making connections, to meeting with people, to landing this, you know, random gig, but not just like, well, you know, it's my first time. So everyone's got 6,000 people in the audience. They're going to give me a pass if I just show up and wing it like I'm gonna bust my butt I'm gonna do a lot of research I'm gonna do a lot of practice and rehearsal and preparation so that by by the time I show up even though this is my first time I want to do the best of my ability and you really put yourself in a position there that uh that seems like it obviously really paid off well yeah and there, you know a couple of the sort of key lessons was for sure the rehearsal and taking it seriously. I could have been the executive that gets up there and says, you know, thank you so much for inviting me. Candidly, I'm just an executive and I don't really do public speaking. Here's some thoughts, which, you know, just sucks all the air out of yeah. the room. So you're right in the sense of I, I took it really seriously and I didn't know my skill level. And I, you know, until many years after that, I don't think you sort of just work it out and figure it out there. So that was one. The other thing is because I was such a, a nerd about this stuff, whether it was business books or going to attend events or watching people speak at the time, I was really passionate about it. I still am. I realized that there was like this sort of little alleyway for my content, which was how can you really provide things that I could walk away with if I was in the audience today to change my career and make it better while at the same time being fun and entertaining. And, you know, at that point I was integrating videos. And again, this is early days of Seth Godin and Tom Peters of like big mm -hmm. images only. So right. I didn't have many bullet, like I'd done a lot of the things that now a lot of speakers might take for granted, but back then you just didn't see that much. And so that was the second thing. The third thing I did was, um, as you probably can tell by this conversation, and I'm sure people like Michael Port and Amy Amy Port will kill me because I, I'm not good at beats and stopping and pausing. I move really fast. Mm -hmm. That was the other thing I wanted to bring to it. I felt that a lot of the speakers after a couple of minutes are just like, you know, sort of slugging your shoulders in the audience, like, let's go. I wanted to like make myself move at like 1.5 X speed of yeah. the average speaker right. so that they're sort of forced to not catch everything or be unsure. That guy, when I get feedback, like he speaks too fast. I was like, good. Like I'm, right. I was looking at it. Like I wanted to retrain. It's not the best thing now that I'm sort of becoming more a student of speaking and the skill and craft of it. But I, I certainly tried to push the medium forward. And it really came from a story that I had heard. Uh, remember the TV show ER? Uh-huh, yeah. So apparently when the TV show ER came out, the regular script for a, an hour drama was something like, let's call it 600 pages. And the ER script was about 900 pages. Hmm. They didn't have more time. They were cramming in more stuff and making the pace move. 
And I remember hearing that story and it's sticking with me. Like that's a really interesting way to change the dynamic or make yourself unique in a world where they're going to probably be exposed to a lot of non-visual people speaking on stage with their hands and moving a lot like a Tony Robbins right. to, um, you know, other speakers who are going to be there with this sort of 20 bullet points going through stuff where it's so much in the minutia. And I want to like hybrid that, like hyper visual, have it be a real experience, have the, 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 the images really be a part of the narrative. Those were some of the things that I, I think really made people be like, oh, this is different. Right. Do you still feel like you speak that fast? I've always felt like for me personally, I speak very, very quickly. And I, yeah. I like that because I, I think it does, it focuses, uh, forces people to focus and forces, forces people to, to really pay attention and, and track. The more time I'm spending with amazing speaking coaches like Nick Morgan and Michael Port and Amy mm -hmm. Port, the more I'm starting to really understand this theory of their, you know, they call it beats. Mm -hmm. You know, this is something very important that I want you to listen to you're waiting, right? Versus Pause, right. this is something very important that I want you to listen to because it, this is, your brain does need that time to go like, what? Yes, I should listen. I'm going to move in. So it's more of like the performance stuff of that. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I am somebody who spent a lot of time having conversations and just communicating. I don't say um a lot. I don't say ah a lot. I don't say sure. I don't start off with okay or whatever. I move very, very quickly because of just the nature of how I've always had conversation. I'm working hard on those beats to try and make people have a moment to take a breath. I could speak forever, as you could probably tell right now. Right. Really so let's, let's go back to, uh, so you do that first event uh, for 6,000 people. The bureau happens to be there, and you luck out there, luck of the draw. From there, were most of the events that you did from that point forward through the bureau were you starting to book anything on your own? Because it sounds like, I mean, if you have like literally zero speaking experience on stage, but also just speaking business experience, obviously most speakers don't have the luxury of a bureau that's, that's, that's finding them, the, the diamond in the rough there. So what was the business looking like from that point forward? Yeah, I mean, well, one is when you start realizing like how much you're going to be paid from the bureau, you start like, you know, what? Like you, that's how this works. Like it's very shocking when you start seeing how, you know, how a $5,000 speaker is, is seen in the market versus a $15,000 speaker versus a 40 or a 60. Yeah. And just seeing that and the ability to get to that sort of 15 or that 10 tranche really quickly was very motivating for me because one, it was double in terms yeah. of income, but two, it just put you in a different category. Right. So, so that's one side of the sort of dynamics that I always encourage people who are in like the two, three, four, five, six thousand dollar range is you got to start thinking about 15 really quickly because at that level you start getting access to things and the value in your perception is seen very, very differently. So that's one side of it. The other side of it was I, I, I'm, it's a weird world where I'm exclusive with speakers, but I also have another bureau and I book direct. So it's a weird world where um, I, I couldn't only be with one exclusive bureau because of the nature of what I was trying to do with the business. So what happened then is people like, you know, the National Retail Federation would call me to come and do an event. Then I met the guys from Google. And then the people from Google wanted me to come and do their events to speak to their top 300 brands or their, you know, YouTube event. Or, and again, this is early days of that. And I couldn't filter that through the, through the bureau because I would do it for free or just expenses because it was good biz dev. Yeah. So the model that we worked at for business was if it's direct, I'm only doing it because there's a biz dev opportunity, even though there might be a speaking fee involved in it. Right. 
typically if anything comes in for me that I feel is not biz dev, it goes right to the bureau. So I'm using speaker spotlight primarily in Canada. And then I use leading authorities. Now I was with greater talent for a long time uh, in the U S and Europe and, and whatever it might be. And, and that's sort of the, the filtering of the business. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that definitely, that definitely makes sense there. I, I'm curious too, you mentioned that one of the best things for you was going from, you know, the two, three, four, five range to 10, 15, very, very quickly. What were some things that you did early on to make that leap? And then even, uh, and again, this was, you know, 10 plus years ago, but what would you recommend for speakers who are in that spot today? Because I know for me, that, that's a question we get a lot from speakers who are, who are going, yeah. I'm charged five, I've been charging five forever. I want to get to 10, I want to get to 15. What things need to be in place in order to make that leap? One is whatever you're delivering on stage has to be such that a planner or an organizer, when they see you, knows you're a, you're a, 10, a 15 plus speaker, meaning the quality of it, the seamlessness of it, the experience of it, how you handle yourself, how you handle the environment, how you deliver it, they know. They can sniff it out. It's what they do. They can see right away that this person is in this bucket or that bucket. So it's sort of the killing it on stage theology. Mm -hmm. you know, I think Scott Stratton is an excellent example of someone who's done that or a Sally Hogshead would be another great example of someone who's done that. That's one. Two is I really believe to move up to that level, you need to have a some form of significant platform. Now, people think that means Twitter followers or Facebook followers. It doesn't. It could just mean that you're just a very well-respected contributor to, like for me, it would be a Harvard Business Review or an Inc. magazine or even a Huffington Post. I mean, any of those where you've really established by just them optically looking at it, there's some social proof, not one or two articles randomly, but like consistently delivering really relevant and powerful content against the subject that you're the SME on, a subject matter expert in. So I think the platform is really important. And again, I say this because I come from a world of, of publishing originally before the internet. So I didn't have my own mag, actually, I did have my own magazines back then. But prior to that, what really gave me the platform was the fact that I wrote for other platforms. Yeah. You know, I was writing for, for magazines like Circus Magazine and Burn or whatever it was in the rock music world at the time. So that's the other part. Uh, the third one is while I think books are becoming somewhat um, not tired, but just because of the nature of books, I think their value has shrunk a little. It certainly does help. I mean, there's no denying the fact that when somebody hears that you have either major literary representation or that you are published on a major publishing house, or you've done it on your own with real significant social proofing, that there's a story to tell. Mm -hmm. the, the thing with that is you can get away with one of those three. You're going to do a lot better with two of those three, but shoot for three of those three. Gotcha. And if you can shoot for those three, there's no chance you're going to fall below a, a 15. You yeah. just won't. If you've got a decent book or two, if you've got some sort of credibility in the, in the ecosystem around the content that you create and you're killing it on stage, I mean, sky's the limit. Right. The going back to the first one that you mentioned in terms of just being able to kill it on stage. How, I think it's, it's one of those things that's always kind of, it's a little bit subjective and it's sometimes yeah. difficult for speakers to be self-aware enough to recognize if they're killing it on stage or not. Cause there's times where speakers are going, I'm killing it. And the audience is going, no, you're not. And vice versa as well, where you have the, not this like false humility of I'm, you know, I'm not that good. And the reality is like, they're, they're really, really good at what they do. So how do you find that speakers can determine, am I killing it or not? get somebody who actually really does this for a living 
to let you know that you have something or you don't have something. Mm -hmm. And when you really bring in a professional, asking your friends for feedback is the worst thing ever. Asking your peers sometimes is because they're not experts at that. Um, but it's, it is, it's, it's, there's also this idea that, you know, Jerry Seinfeld talks about this. And I think there's a lot of correlation between what we do as professional speakers and stand-up comedians where it's like, you know, you want to ask other, other comedians if they think it's funny or get their real feedback because they know the craft of it. Yeah. But it is true that if you're on stage and you're not getting laughs from people who have no idea what comedy is, mm -hmm. um, there's a problem. So I don't think it's a question of people clapping or laughing. Uh, Tom Webster, uh, who's also a really phenomenal speaker and, and a good buddy of mine, would often say that, or he tells me this story, and it sort of happened to me organically, and I sort of really aligned to the story, that there's a lot of people who like love the feedback of that person was hysterical, or they made me laugh, or it was really entertaining. It's like, that's all vanity-based feedback. The feedback you really want to have when you're killing it is, I actually learned three things from that that I'm going to deploy in my life now. Yeah. That's like when you're really killing it, when, the, when you're consistently getting feedback where people are saying, forget he was funny, he was good, he was likable, the images were great, she, she, she did this well. It's all about did they actually take and do something with it and did that feedback lead to that person rebooking you? Right. Those right. are some of the ways. But I think that if you're sort of just getting starting out, started out, the best thing you can do is invest in yourself. And that is things like heroic public speaking with, with Michael and, and Amy. I feel like I, I, I'm like a, an affiliate for them. I'm not. Or speaking to like, again, a Nick Morgan. I mean, there's so many experts sure. in this space that people can turn to. Right. How do you find the balance between humor and content? I know that, that that's something that I personally, I, I know I've, I've, I've wondered about from time to time. Of, of, I like using a lot of humor. I like using a lot of stories. Uh, I like using um, uh, comedy. But at the same time, you're, you're exactly right that if an audience leaves and they say, hey, that was awesome and that was hilarious, but I didn't get anything from it, uh, it's, it's kind of a waste of everybody's time. So using humor can be a huge differentiating factor for speakers because so many speakers are just dry and boring and dull. So how do you find that balance between humor and comedy and, and also using content? The one thing I'd say, Grant, is I'd sort of push back a little bit on what you're saying. I think it's a big day when, when there's a lot of speakers and, and there are speakers who are just really funny and entertaining. And while they, they may be what my friend Avinash Kaushik at Google would call content free, Mm -hmm. it's still an important thing to the day because it sort of just keeps the day sure. going. Not everybody can be exactly that. Um, you know, candidly for myself, I just like, I, I think what makes some of my content humorous is the fact that I try and be more like my audience than someone speaking down to them. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is that I, I think being funny isn't the idea. Being memorable is. Yeah. So if I can, you know, have an aside comment that might look off the cuff and something that I sure. just improv, but is actually, you know, pedantically paced and, and, and scheduled and sequenced, right. like I do with my opening, my opening is very much like that. Um, I, I want it to sort of feel like he just sort of made something up, but that was actually really funny, or it was actually more importantly than being funny, it was really human. That was really human and that like made me re relate to him. And so comedy can make you relate to people, but you know, opening with a joke is a bad idea. So the opening that I, that I sort of teased out before is you're never supposed to walk up on stage and go, so how's everybody doing this? Morning? It's a wasted moment. Like yeah. you should start with real power. And I believe that, but I do it. And I do it because I, I do it on purpose. I'll come out and go, so how's everybody doing today? And you know what it's like? It's like, 
clap. Nobody says it. <laughs> a couple people do. And what I say right after that is, oh, sorry, I apologize. This isn't YouTube. I'm actually here. You can interact with me. I'm a human. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's, it's not ha, 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 slap your knee funny, but it actually does frame that, oh, this guy's going to talk to us about digital media and technology. And that, like, it sort of frames it in a way where they laugh or they get a, you know, they get a good chuckle out of that because yeah. it's, it's true. We mostly don't clap because we think it's, it's a video. We're watching TV or whatever. Right. So I'll do things, things like that, but I'm not like Scott Stratton where it's literally like, you know, a planned idea. Right, right. I think there's definitely some truth to this. I think the sooner, if you want to use a lot of humor, the sooner you can get to humor early on, the quicker it establishes that this is going to, there's going to be humor involved in this, you know? Yeah. And the other thing is humor is not a joke. That's true. The thing too. People think humor is a joke or punchline. A punchline, punch right. And it's not. Like humor is just a sort of way of, of, of the audience knowing that you're with them and we've all experienced something similar together and there's something sort of smiley or smirkishly good in that. Um, you know, I watch, again, like someone like Scott Strang or Ron Tite, they get just big, big laughs. And I, I love it and I think it's amazing. Maybe I could do that, but I think I would need a lot of like comedic training for that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, one of the things that you've, you've had a lot of experience with is speaking to major corporations and major brands. And I, I know that there's a lot of speakers that aspire to that, who they want to work with the Walmarts, the Googles, the Starbucks of the world. So can you kind of talk us through what that trajectory has been like of, Hey, I'm interested in speaking to now all of a sudden I'm in front of, you know, top executives for fill in the blank XYZ corporation. What, what does that look like for you? Yeah. Again, I wish it was like a, this long, hard, <laughs> arduous road of like inbound marketing and lead sure. gen and calling. The bureau calls and goes, hey, August 15th, can you go do this thing for P&G or for Walmart or for Starbucks or for Nestle or whoever? Yeah. And I look at my schedule and I go, yeah, I could do that. Let me have a call with them and make sure the content is aligned with what their objectives are. And then let's do it. And again, I'm not trying to diminish it. I'm not trying to put myself up on a pedestal. I had a very unique situation happen to me where I don't have to fight hard to get in front of those audience. Not only that, but you know, over a decade later, I actually don't try. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, I could speak to a society, like I just did the society of actuaries and then I'll do Salesforce and I'm not like one's better than the other. They just happen to be the ones that call that want this topic and I'm open on that date. So I, my, my answer back is I try to be somewhat um, indiscriminate about it. I don't really care, to be honest, as long as my content is what that audience needs and that I'm going to help them learn and move ahead as an industry, as a corporation, as a brand. I get what you're saying. Do I have a list of businesses I would love to speak in front of? I do. Would I proactively call and pitch them? Not my style. It could be because I'm Canadian. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's right, just not right, my right. thing to be like, hey, do you need a speaker? But there, look, I will look online. As you know, we're connected in a couple of Facebook groups that talk about this stuff. And, you know, I do see things where I'm like, wow, how does this person go to the same event year after year? And I've never been invited. I mean, in terms of everything optically, I've done more. I've, you know, in terms of just how you perceive it social proofing wise. And again, the answer is probably they're working it and I'm not. So yeah. I'm probably the worst person to ask about how do you work it? Uh, the answer is those three things I talked about. 
and hopefully magic happens. <laughs> yeah. So going back to, and, and one of those three factors being that you're, you're killing it, I'm curious about how your talk has evolved and changed over time and not just the talk itself, but also just the, the topic and the content. Cause what was relevant in terms of, of your industry, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago is very, very different than what it looks like today. So how do you make sure that your topic, what it is that you're speaking to, you're speaking on at the problem that you're solving and who you're actually speaking to you're staying ahead of that curve. So it's not, you're talking about, hey, everybody, MySpace is coming. And so make sure you, you find your top eight friends. So what, what does that look like on your end? Yeah, it's a great question. It's actually sort of like my favorite secret recipe stuff behind the scenes that I love talking about. When I started, I didn't want to be the guy who was like, every speech will be its own custom experience. I didn't want that. I also didn't want to be the guy who's got their 40 slides that they do yeah. every year for 10 years. And Take so it or leave it. This is it. The hybrid that I worked around is anytime I see something that is relevant to potentially an audience, I'm going to capture and make a slide out of it. And in the early days, that slide deck went from like my initial deck to 3,000 slides in a couple of months. Now, they weren't all workable slides. They still aren't. And now that slide deck is probably 20,000 slides, to be honest. Um, but it's not one deck. It's, it's all over. It's just now it's bucketed into categories. So, so one is that side of it where uh, I, I always build anything I see that could be a stat or a data or a good story. I build the deck and I have it and I can keep thinking about it and mulling it over and figuring out where it goes in the set. That was one. Two is I always knew that if my center of excellence is how brands connect to consumers through technology with marketing being in the middle, that's a pretty wide and long runway. Like, mm -hmm. when are we not going to talk about how does technology affect our business, right? Like, it's, it's sure. always there. So the anchor in my, in my topic was always one that had a lot of longevity, a lot of legs, a lot of length. The third component of it that really took it to a whole other level was when I started watching how stand-up comedians talk about stand-up comedy. Mm -hmm. And I now deploy what I call the Louis C.K. model to public speaking, which is that every year I want 100% new content. Right. That doesn't mean that on January I throw everything out and start over. It means that throughout the year, as, I, as Louis would write jokes or as I'm building slides, I'm putting stuff in, moving stuff around, figuring it out, trying to do it so that if you see me over the course of a year, every time you see me, it might be a slightly different. That example's gone. This story's here. That moved from the front to the end. All that sort of stuff so that by the year – it's actually 100% different content from when you saw me last year. I'm not perfect with that, but that is how I think about my content. The challenge with that, of course, is the marketing of it. Mm -hmm. So if you actually go onto my speaking bureau page or my speaking page, you'll see like four topics, which is fine, but it's hard because the topics are anchored around the book, right? This is the control yeah. alt delete speech. So now I'm working on one that I don't love in terms of a title because I'm struggling with it called algorithm, A-L-G-O dash R-H-Y-T-H-M, sort of like algo data plus mm -hmm. rhythm, like creativity and brand and all that. So it, it flies when you see it. It flies as a keynote. It doesn't work well in, in when you're concurrent or stuff like that. And it's also people hear algorithm, they just think data. So I'm struggling with the title, but that is the, the, the over 100% of new content that I started post control alt delete. Yeah. So the truth is that in theory, it could still be controlled all delete algorithm if you think about it. It's just how it iterated and went. But you, you do need from a marketing perspective to have a couple of choices for the potential planner or organizer. Are you trying to come up with new content on a yearly basis 
for your own personal self just to keep it engaged? Because I know it's possible for a speaker who's been doing the same talk, doing the same stories that they can go on autopilot on stage and yet still kill it and just kind of be going through the motions, but the talk is still solid. So are you doing that for your own sake, just to keep yourself engaged? Or is it more of a marketing tool that I need to stay because I'm speaking in the, the space of technology, which is rapidly changing. I need to, for a marketing standpoint, stay ahead of the curve. I mean, it's a little bit of everything. My attitude is if I'm showing a screenshot of Facebook, it should damn well be from that morning. Yeah. If I'm going to show a screen capture of Airbnb, it should be from that morning, not a version, which is the old logo from six years ago. Uh, but I'll give you a really great like current example of this. So one of the things I talk about is how consumers buying behavior changes dramatically because of technology. And one of the theories I talk about when it comes to streaming is not that it's streaming that that's, that's an affect of this, but rather the fact that people are now paying for access to a library like you would for Netflix over ownership. I'm going to buy a movie, have a TV show. And there was an inflection point that happened very recently where the amount of U.S. cable subscribers has met the amount of people who are subscribed to Netflix. So that's like a pretty good validator of what I'm saying. So yeah. you've got the little chart up there and you can talk to it and make a funny joke or whatever. Last week, Netflix surpassed it. So if you're not paying attention, if you're not doing your job, in literally four days, it went from like equal to surpassing, it's a yeah. different story. It's a different yeah. setup. It's a different visualization you're going to create on stage before you show this cool little you know, intersection graph thing. So, so I do it because I want people to feel in the audience like, so, so one, I don't customize it for the audience. I'm customizing in terms of keeping it au courant. So what I'll tell people is, I'm not going to customize it for you, but you'll feel in the moment that he just built this deck this morning. It, 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 in terms of how recent the information is. So that's sort of the spirit of it. I want people to sit in the audience and be like, wow, like there is nobody who presented me more current content. Literally, he took a screenshot this morning. Like, right. I think that, that that really shows the audience you care about them. Right. It's much more than a, uh, here's a USA Today headline from uh, 2007 uh, of something that happened back then that has nothing to do with what we're doing today, but I was too lazy as a speaker to swap out the slide. Yeah. Sometimes I have those and I sort of, I, I'll, I'll call it out. I'll say, I don't know if you know this, but the slide's actually from 2014. It's not because I'm lazy. It's because think about what happened in 2014 and how we're not doing anything about it in 2017. Right. So I don't do it because the story hasn't changed. I do it because I actually think it emphasizes a really strong point. Right, right. I, I, since you come from a music background, I always heard it described that from speaking, it, it's, it's not like you have this exact same talk that you do every time. It's kind of like a, it's like a set list for a band. You know, so a band that has a, an archive of 100 songs, well, any given concert, they may only do, you know, 25 or 30 of those songs. And each night it may look slightly different and what songs they do and what order they do it in and what, you know, breaks they have in between may look different. But you're going to get, so you're going to get a variation of the same thing every time. So it sounds like if you've built kind of this, this archive of, you know, 10, 20,000 slide, slides that uh, just points, data, stories, just images, anything that you're gathering along the way and collecting along the way, that it could look different on any given day, but you're also uh, still has like the same end point that you're going for. Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I, I would push back on that only because as someone who's done it over a decade really professionally mm -hmm. and someone who's listening to this new, don't do that. Um, you really want to know your hour 
that when you get up on stage, it's not the first time you're doing it. That's the worst scenario you could be in. So the analogy that I would give for public speaking and music is more genre-based. And, and how I tell people about public speaking is I think there's three types of speakers. There's one speaker that's the improv. They're going to just get up there and whatever they're thinking that morning, they're going to go and do. Um, great examples of that were people like Gary Vaynerchuk in the early days. It was like yeah. whatever was on his mind just came out. Um, he then, as I think his speaking fee went up and as his messaging changed, he got much better at moving to his next one. The next genre for me is, is rock music. And rock music, you know the song, you know, there's an intro, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, you, you know what it is, sure. but you might jam a little bit in the bridge or you might move a chorus over, but you still know exactly the lyrics, exactly the notes, exactly where you're going. The third genre of music is classical music. It's sheet music. You're not missing a beat. You're not missing a tone. You know where every motion is. You know where everything is. There's nothing. You're never going to deviate. That piece of Mozart is going to be played the exact same way by every single symphony ever for this day forward. It's going to be different each night based off of the little ways and nuances of how the instrument is played. Yeah. Um, my recommendation if you're starting off, believe it or not, is to be a classical musician and just master that thing until you just know every single breath of every single foot, every single movement of a hand, of a, of a head gesture. I have definitely prescribed much more to the rock and roll thing. Um, and I don't think that it's right. I just think that there's three ways. I actually do think that the improv way is the worst. And I think there's only a handful of very spectacularly amazing, successful people who can pull it off only because they are spectacularly successful and have an amazing skill of, of talking off the top of their head. I believe that most speakers don't make it because they think they're being cool by being all improv and fresh mm -hmm. and, and content just for you. It's a terrible idea. You know, the, the analogy for, to music is if you were paying a lot of money to go see you too, do you want to see them try out a new song that they've never worked on before live in front of the audience? Or do you want to see them do, you know, with or without you? Right. right. Now, some people who really love the band might say, I'd love to see them, but you wouldn't because it's a mess. Right. They're showing you when they're on stage something that they've spent hours practicing, rehearsing, working on. As a speaker, you have to bring that same craft to the work. You have to do that. So I, I don't hate improv speakers. I just don't recommend it. I don't hate rock and roll speakers. I just don't recommend it for new speakers. I think classical, that sort of sheet music, I know exactly what the script is, and I'm really delivering it amazingly where it doesn't look like it's a script, right? You don't sit down and watch a symphony and go, I could tell they're reading the music. You're like crying and sobbing because of how beautifully they're, they're, they're performing it. Yeah. That's what you want. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say was, was the, some of the best speakers and the best comedians in the world are those that are uh, classical speakers or classical comedians, but they make it look like improv. They make it look oh. like it's all off the cuff and they just came up with that. When in reality, they've delivered that punchline or they've told that story or they know the ebb and flow of that talk. And they've done it for years and years and years, but they make it look like, ah, they're just, you know, making it up as they go. You watch, again, there's tons of these documentaries, you know, Jerry Seinfeld's Comedian, Comedian. Is one yeah. of the, my favorite movies of all time. And you just watch this guy grind over a word. I mean, there's that famous Pop-Tart pop story. Like he just had in his brain, he wanted to do this joke about Pop-Tarts. And just the, the, you can look and see like, like all the notebooks on this one joke that's literally two lines, the inflection, which word goes where, how does it fit? 
you know, I don't do it as much as I should. And I'm sort of kicking myself, especially this week, because I did a lot of training this week, actually, with Michael and Amy Port, that I need to really rethink that. I sort of got not, I wouldn't say lazy. I think my stuff is always fresh and fun. But I, I sort of stepped a bit away from that craft that I need to go back to. But but you're, you are exactly, and even your choice of words, like, you know, that Pop-Tart story is so funny. Why? Because the word Pop-Tart is funny. Yeah. And like, we don't even think about that. Like he just got, he latched onto the fact that that word is funny. We need to do that more as speakers. What are the words that actually will impact the audience? It's easy to say one word. How many different ways could you say that word that might have more impact on the audience? And that's something that again, as a writer and a thinker, I think about all the time. Well, Mitch, thank you so much, man, for uh, sharing your time, sharing your story and journey, some of the lessons that you've learned along the way. Really, uh, really good insights. I really appreciate the, the time here. So if people want to find out more about you, what you're up to, where, where can we go? Google Mitch Joel. That's the place. We'll uh, link up to, well, I guess there's nothing to link up to there. Well, you can go to MitchJoel.com and redirects you everywhere you need to go for sure. Deal. We can definitely do that. Thanks for the time, buddy. Appreciate you. Thanks, Grant. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Speaker Lab Podcast. And before you take off, don't forget, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating and review within iTunes. We read every single one of those. It helps, it helps other people to find the show. Listen, we, we don't charge anything for you to listen to these. We don't have any ads or anything. We do this because we want to serve and support speakers like you. So one small favor we ask of you is that you would leave us some type of a rating and review. Again, we really, really do appreciate that. If you're looking for more help, support as a speaker as you build and grow your business at whatever stage you're at, don't forget to check out thespeakerlab.com, thespeakerlab.com. We got a ton of free resources and tools over there. So again, check it out over at thespeakerlab.com. All right, my friends, that wraps up today's episode. We appreciate you hanging out with us. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome.